Please take out your pew Bibles in front of you and turn to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be focusing on just a few verses here in this chapter, the first six of 2 Kings chapter 8. As you turn there, uh, let me give you a bit of background about this passage. We've come this evening to the last of three episodes, we might say, in the life of the Shunammite woman. Now, the Shunammite woman is um, someone about whom Scripture tells us relatively little, and yet she shows up on the pages of Scripture uh, no less than three times. Sort of an interesting point. And what we do know about her is this. She's a woman of great faith. She loves the Lord. When Elisha, the prophet, comes to her in need, she provides him with food. She gives him a place to stay. She is in the midst of a very wicked and, and rebellious nation, the nation of Israel. She is a, a bright light of obedience and faithfulness um, in Israel. And so she loves God's Word and God Himself and His prophet. We also know something else about her. We know that God's providence unfolded in her life in some very perplexing ways. A few chapters back in chapter 4, we see that God provides for her a son in the midst of her barrenness, only to take that son away. Her son dies, and then her son is restored to her by resurrection. Uh, and so the Shunammite experienced God's providence as a series of ups and downs, somewhat perplexing. And yet we see in her life uh, a lesson that God's Word and His promises prevail. And we're going to see that again in this third episode of her life. So, let me read the first six verses here of 2 Kings chapter 8. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise, and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years." So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. And here we're going to end our reading of God's Word this evening. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. Ask somebody on the street, why do things happen the way they do? And that's the likely answer that you will get. What goes around comes around. So many, in our, so many people in our world truly believe that our lives are, are basically the sum result of a very 
impersonal cause and effect relationship. If you're a good person, if you're good to those around you, well, you'll, you'll receive some good things in return. If you're a bad person, though, you better watch your back because bad things are on their way. Uh, destiny, fate, karma. So many people think that these are the great levelers of the human race, uh, sort of like sand poured into a bucket and then shaken around. Everything just sort of it levels out in the end. Everything sort of evens out for everyone. Well, not only is that, of course, contrary to what Scripture tells us about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, but we realize that that doesn't even jive with our experience, does it? In so many cases, those who are righteous, those who are good people, people of integrity, suffer. On the other hand, those people who are terrible, lacking integrity, all out for themselves, Everything seems to go well for them. The psalmist um, decries this problem. It seems like the righteous suffer, whereas the evil uh, flourish. But as Christians, we understand, don't we, that our lives are not the result of fate or karma. Our decisions have consequences, to be sure, but it is God who ordains our paths. It is God who ordains, appoints both the means and the ends of our everyday experiences. We confess something wonderful in Lord's Day 10 as believers, that God by His providence so rules and upholds all things that they come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And so we can be patient in adversity. We can have confidence for the future, confidence in our ruling Heavenly Father. But just because we know that doesn't mean that God's providence doesn't perplex us sometimes. Just because we know that He is in control doesn't mean that His providence doesn't sometimes perplex us, and we wonder what He's up to. Perhaps you have um, acted out in faith and obedience before God. You've served your neighbor. You've raised your children well in the fear of the Lord. But you're mistreated by your neighbor. Uh, your, your children rebel against your standards. Uh, those around you do not treat you well, but poorly. We do what is good. We obey the Lord, and we suffer in return. We experience God's providence as a series of ups and downs sometimes, don't we? And that's how we could describe the Shunammite's woman, uh, Shunammite woman's life here in this passage, as a history of ups and downs. Earlier on, as I said in chapter 4, she embraced God's promise that in her barrenness she would have a child. God met that need, and then He took that child away, only to give it back again. Well, as we look at this final episode of the Shunammite, we see that once again uh, God's providence perplexes her. But one theme always shines through, that our God never abandons us. Even the, the pains, even the disappointments in this veil of tears in which we live serve His purposes. They contribute to our salvation, finally. And so, while we too, like this Shunammite, sojourn, we, we walk as strangers in a strange land, we can be assured 
We can be hopeful that God has secured for us an eternal inheritance as part of our redemption that will never be lost, and Christ is a guarantee of that inheritance. And so although God's providence may perplex us at times, although we may feel like strangers in a broken world, we can press on as obedient sojourners. We can believe God's promises in faith. That's the lesson for us this evening as we consider these few verses from 2 Kings chapter 8. We see, first of all, that God's providence perplexes. We could really say God's providence perplexes once again in the case of the Shunammite. Here's what we know about her from this passage. She's a woman of consistent faith and obedience to God's Word. God says to His people, I'm bringing a famine upon you. Because of your disobedience, because of your covenant unfaithfulness, a famine is coming upon the land. But because this woman loves the Lord, because she loves God's Word, Elisha is told to go to her and to warn her ahead of time that she should leave the area. And again, as a faithful, obedient servant, she heeds Elisha's call. And so she gathers up her her family, and she heads off to Philistia, a place that would be a common location for people to leave. It was a very fertile area, uh, a good place to go if your own homeland was under severe famine. And we need to realize that this move was no small thing for her. This was a great inconvenience. We know from uh, four chapters earlier that she was a woman of great means. She was a wealthy woman. She had a great estate. And to pack up as much of that as she could in her household and move to another country to make herself a wanderer was no small thing. For her to leave this family inheritance that had been given to her on oath to her forefathers and to leave it for seven whole years was a difficult thing to do. A great deal of faith was needed to leave her land and make herself a wanderer in a foreign land, just like Abraham, her forefather. She had to wait. She had to wait upon the Lord and live by faith alone. She believes God, she faithfully obeys, and she is spared. She is spared from the famine that's going to come upon all the people of idolatrous Israel. She's faithful. She's a godly woman, and yet once again, her blessing turns to despair. She returns home to Shunem seven years after she leaves, and she finds that someone has taken her property in the meantime. Perhaps she uh, appointed some tenants over her land, and they were deceitful, and they, they took the resources and took the land. That's a possibility. A more likely possibility is that the king himself, Jehoram, took this land. Jehoram, you might remember, was the son of Ahab and Jezebel, two of the most wicked rulers in the history of Israel. And Ahab and Jezebel, you might remember, had a habit of taking people's land. Remember Naboth's vineyard? If you turn to 1 Kings 21, you'd you'd read about Naboth's vineyard. Um, Ahab and Jezebel stole it from under him. And so maybe Jehoram, like his parents, has some land-grabbing tendencies, and he took her land. We don't know exactly. But the irony here is this. Her faith in God, her obedience to the word of the prophet, has resulted in the loss of her estate. What perplexing providence. 
What a strange turn of events. You might remember in chapter 4, Elisha wanted to repay the Shunammite woman because of her hospitality. He said, I'm willing to put in a good word for you to the commander or the king. But she said, no, no, no. I'm well off. I, I dwell among my people. I'm content. The Lord has met my needs. I don't need anything from you, Elisha. But now, after heeding the voice of God's prophet, after, after leaving her precious land that God had promised to her, now she finds herself in need of the very help that she once turned down simply because she was content with what the Lord had given her. And now she must go and plead for her own land, which is rightfully hers, and she must plead for it from a king. There it goes. A king who was only slightly more righteous than his wicked parents. Not exactly a rousing commendation. Again, we're supposed to be somewhat perplexed at this. What about these turn of events? We don't immediately see why God works in her life this way. And in fact, this narrative captures something of our own experience as believers. When our own obedience doesn't automatically result in blessing, but disappointment. And yet there's a sense here that God's in control. This is not outside of His plan for her. God is going to use even these troubling circumstances, these adverse circumstances, He's going to use them for her good. And we see that in the second point here, that God's providence prevails over unbelief. We see that God has, in fact, not abandoned her. He's not abandoned this faithful servant or her family. Her obedience to His Word did not go unnoticed. It would not result in the ultimate loss of her land. And the proof is here for us to see God's gracious providential care in the lives of His saints. Notice some of the details here. At the same time that the Shunammite woman comes to the king's courts to make her appeal, to try to get her land back, who's there already? Who's there? Elisha's right-hand man, his servant, Gehazi. Why is he there? Is he there to complain about the king's wickedness? No. The king has asked him there because wicked King Jehoram wants to know something about what Elisha's been up to. He's interested in the miraculous works that Elisha's been working in Israel. And that in itself is rather surprising. We know that Jehoram and Elisha were not buddies. They were not on great terms. Jehoram didn't care for Elisha, and the feeling was mutual. Yet here we find Jehoram, the wicked king, inquiring into God's work through the prophet. We wonder, has the, has the king had a, a change of heart? Has his commitment turned towards the Lord? We don't know, but one thing is clear. Someone has impacted the king so that he is inquiring about God's prophet. He's inquiring about the Lord's powerful working in the land through Elisha. That itself is part of God's provision for her, but there's something more, and it's all about timing. Remarkably, just at the same time that Gehazi is before the king recounting all of the miraculous things that Elisha's been doing, especially raising the Shunammite's son, lo and behold, who comes into the room, the very topic of conversation. 
And the Shunammite and her son come in at just the right time to ask for the king's help. We can almost envision Gehazi's eyes open wide as he, as he points at them and says, there they are. See, I told you. Proof positive that what I'm telling you is true. God's Word is true. God's timing truly is perfect for His people. And we see that God's care for the Shunammite abounds in her life. The king, though a wicked king in the annals of the history of Israel, he does right by her. He does his sworn duty. He returns her land. Not only that, he goes above and beyond the call of duty. He assigns her an official to deal with her case. He not only restores her property, he provides her with all of the income of the land that she would have gained had she stayed in the country those last seven years. What a marvelous provision. Again, we don't know whether the king is acting out of true faith or is he just fascinated with Elisha's miracles. We don't know. Maybe he was just charmed by Elisha but not converted. We just don't know. But he's at least impressed enough to grant this woman of faith the justice that she deserves. Is this not another example of the power of God's Word having an effect upon the hard-hearted people of Israel. This is the, the wicked king's finest moment on the pages of Scripture, but only because his heart is strangely warmed that he is uncharacteristically just and kind and interested in God's work in Israel. What prompted him to consult Gehazi about Elisha's work? What prompted him to show this uncharacteristic kindness to the Shunammite woman? We can only attribute it to God's powerful working through him despite himself according to the Word of God. We read in Proverbs 21 this wonderful thing about God's work among the kings. We read in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord by his providence turns all things for her good so that God's promises to her would not fail. God's word prevails once again in Israel and she would enjoy the fruit of her inheritance for the rest of her life. We are reminded, too, of God's gracious providence for us, that He turns all things for our good, even if we must go through a period of adversity, even if, even if we must go through years, perhaps decades of trial in which our prayers and our cries for help are not seemingly answered. But then, without a moment's notice, God demonstrates that He has indeed met our needs and He's been meeting our needs the entire time. He turns all things for our good, but He works according to His will and He works according to His perfect timing. We must remember that. But there's more for us to see here. Finally, we see that God's providence preserves an inheritance. We've seen that every time God worked in the life of the Shunammite, 
it was to demonstrate something important to the people of Israel. Uh, God's providential kindness to her serves as a powerful lesson to His people amidst their idolatry and their apostasy. When God rewarded her with a child after her barrenness, Israel observed that God's Word was true. His promise, though an unlikely thing to be fulfilled, was fulfilled in her life. God's promise remained true when He raised this boy from the dead. And once again here, there's a lesson for Israel when God moves the heart of a wicked king to restore to this woman her rightful property after they heard all the things that Elisha the prophet had done. Again and again, you see, God's Word is proven true among the people of Israel. It's utterly reliable. Nothing can defeat it. And that's a lesson that Israel needed to learn at that time. You see, the book of First and Second Kings was written for the exiles languishing in Babylonian captivity. At that time, God's people were like the Shunammite. They were sojourners. They were strangers living in a very strange and hostile land, and they longed to be returned to the land of promise. And this final episode in the Shunammite's life must have been a wonderful and a beautiful reminder to them of God's faithful providence. It gave them reason to hope that one day they could return to that physical land that God had promised to them that He was preserving for them. But if they properly understood the promise of God, they were looking forward to something far better than just a physical land in Palestine. They were looking and hoping for a better heavenly country where God dwelt. This passage speaks to us as well as 21st century Christians who often feel that we are languishing in a very strange and hostile world. We live amidst an ever-increasing secularization in our 21st century world. And we often feel like Israel, like the Shunammite woman, we often feel like sojourners. We are, in fact, strangers on the earth. We're, we're traveling through a very foreign land in which we so often feel like outsiders, robbed of our dignity, not tolerated, urged to compromise our spiritual identity as the people of God. But this passage teaches us that the life of our faith is also a life of confidence, it's a life of confidence in God's Word that it is still powerfully at work, and it's still successful today. God will fulfill His Word. He will fulfill His promises to His church. He has redeemed us, and right now He's preserving for us an eternal inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable. It's not a plot of soil in ancient Palestine but He has made us co-heirs with Christ of a far more lasting treasure, an eternal city whose architect and builder is God Himself. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read something wonderful about the hope of Abraham and all those who followed him. We read here that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He had to leave his father's household, 
to leave the land that was familiar to him and go to a land that he did not know. He read here, he went out, he followed God's commandment in faith, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? What was he really looking for? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And all of those listed here in in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, we're looking forward to that same eternal city built by God. We read in verse 13 that all of them died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. Peter, later on, would also write to a group of exiles, and and this is how he would address them right at the beginning of his letter. He said, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance—an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you.'" who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Brothers and sisters, by faith we also have this inheritance. We have this inheritance. And in fact, in a very important sense, we have already received it. We've already received the reality of this promise in principle because of what Christ has done. And through the persevering faithfulness of Jesus, we have already come, we read later in Hebrews 12, we've already come to Mount Zion. We've come already to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth are already ours, our private possession as the people of God. And so for us, the heavenly citizenship that we already have by faith, the heavenly citizenship that we look forward to obtaining in full when Christ returns, that grounds our confidence amidst the perplexing providence of this life's trials. We look forward in faith to our heavenly inheritance where uh, no troubles will beset us. In Luke 18, verse 7, we have the promise that God will give speedy justice to those who call on Him in faith. God promises that He will vindicate us as His saints if we trust His promises, if we remain faithful even as we are exiles, as sojourners on this earth. But our Lord Jesus asks a question there in Luke 18 as well. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? Will we live by faith in God's promises as the Shunammite woman did? 
Or will our Lord Jesus at His return find that we have drowned in materialism? Have we succumbed to the the spirit of this age? Have we remembered the precious promise of God that He is preserving an inheritance for us? Or will we have forgotten that? And will we be seeking after earthly things? Are we keeping in mind that that this world in which we now live, in which we are now strangers, is actually our world? That God, that Christ is going to renew and perfect for all of us. Do we really live by the Word of God, which is the strength that guarantees our eternal inheritance? We are called to persevere, brothers and sisters, as sojourners. We're called to persevere to the end, holding fast to this beautiful reality of the inheritance of God for us, that God, by His providence, though it may perplex us at times, a providence that He's preserving for us, a reality promised and pictured so beautifully for us in Revelation 21. This is what we look forward to. This is the inheritance that God has secure for us. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with His people. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a wonderful inheritance, preserved, protected by the providence of God for all of those who, of us who now sojourn in faith, waiting obediently upon the promises of God to be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for the important reminder of Your Word that You are faithful and You will not abandon us. We are comforted tonight that listening to and obeying Your Word, although it may not result in immediate blessing or enjoyment or peace. Ultimately, obeying Your Word will not result in loss for us, but rather the reward of righteousness. You've told us in Your Word in Matthew 10 that everyone who acknowledges You before men, You will acknowledge before Your Father in heaven. And we claim that promise this evening. Lord, we thank You Thank You for working all things together for our eternal salvation. We can be amazed at Your providential care for us. We see it here in the the life of the Shunammite woman. 
in the timing, uh, in the planning of this whole event, that had she come into the presence of the king at any other moment, her request would likely have been denied, but you knew exactly what she needed at exactly the right time. And this is such a beautiful reminder of what kind of God you are. You are the God who meets our needs exactly as we have need and according to your perfect will. And so, O Lord, help us to cast aside our worry. Please dispel our anxiety about those things which now trouble us. Help us to remember that You are turning all things for our good, that the dark and the hard times are are just as much under Your control and used for Your purposes as times of ease and prosperity. You reveal Your grace and Your goodness and Your power to us as much in those times as in times of abundance. We see Your providential care behind difficult and disappointing events so that our longing for our more lasting home in the new heavens and the new earth, our heavenly inheritance, so that that our longing for that home might increase. And so let not our hearts be troubled, O Lord. Increase our faith. Increase our obedience. Assure us that even right now You are preserving and preparing a place for us, that You will come again to take us to Yourself where we will enjoy the bliss of eternal fellowship where all tears will be wiped away and no more trouble, no more trial will beset us. May we rest in these sure promises, O God. Amen.